If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Medicine in America, hosted by Anthony Manson and Todd Harrington, shares the stories of physicians, other healthcare professionals, and industry leaders who are changing the way we deliver care. There's an episode that you should check out called Primary Care Reimagined with Subscription-Based Preventative Care Model. It's an inspiring call for a paradigm shift in primary care. All of their episodes highlight innovative ideas at the forefront of the movement to transform our healthcare system. Check out Medicine in America on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Nurse Wellness Podcast, empowering nurses to manage stressors so they can intentionally reconnect with their purpose, optimize their wellness, and ultimately show up in the world the way they want to be seen. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Wendy Garvin-Mayo, your stress solution strategist. In this podcast, you'll receive actionable stress management tips, insightful interviews, and strategies that focus on inspiring you to be your best, do your best, and give your best. With that, let's get started. Welcome to the Nurse Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Wendy Garvin-Mayo, and I am so excited to be here with you today. In this episode, we are going to hear from Dr. Maria Kroll, who was born in Peru, and she is currently an Associate Professor and BSN Program Director at Southern Connecticut State University Department of Nursing. In her 30-year career, she has had various roles in maternal newborn nursing and public health nursing. She is currently the president of Sigma Theta Tau, International Honor Society of Nursing, Mu Beta Chapter, and the founder and president of the National Association of Hispanic Nurses, Connecticut Chapter. She developed a service learning trip for nursing students to Peru in a student-led group at Southern to foster leadership and mentorship among diverse students. Dr. Kroll's research interests include leadership, mentoring, and Hispanic health. Enjoy this amazing conversation with Dr. Kroll, who provides so many nuggets that we can apply to our lives today. All right. Welcome, Dr. Maria Kroll, to the Nurse Wellness Podcast. I'm so happy that you are here with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be able to be here and talk to you. Yes. Can we start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your nursing journey? So um, first of all, I want to say that I was born in South America. I came here as a teenager and finished my education. I joined the army uh, because, you know, I um, come from a family of six so my parents couldn't pay for college. And so I decided that the way to go to college eventually would be to be in this service. Um, Once I graduated, um, I had always wanted to be a nurse. I, when I go back to, if you go back to my yearbook, high school yearbook, you could see that my career choice was going to be a nurse. And I think about that. I had two choices. I think that I always say that if I was my mother, I would have been a lawyer or an FBI agent, but um, nursing was um, definitely a career choice. Um, When I left the army, I always tell people that I took probably the longest road. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important for um, everybody to have a mentor. But I think like for minorities is even more, especially because we don't really know and our parents aren't don't know what which way to go in terms of 
achieving an education the easiest way. So I first, um, you know, I, I was already married. I got married very young and I, you know, eventually um, went on to have kids. And I decided, my friend actually called me up and said, I'm taking the LPN test. Do you want to do it? And I thought like, oh, all right. So we took the test, we got in and we started the program. And in retrospect, I always feel like I wish somebody had said to me, do an RN program because this is, you know, this is 12 months, five days a week. And you could, you know, and I had small kids at that time, you could really probably do better doing a two-year program at a, or a three-year program at a, for an RN. But I didn't know. So I did the one year, graduated, was in the workplace. And um, immediately I knew that I wanted to go on. And one of the things that happened to me that made me decide is because I think like people always think that uh, if you're, you know, Hispanic or if you're black or if you're an LPN, that those are, you know, that that makes you less. So somebody said to me when I was working, was trying to give me an order. And I said, um, I can't take an order. I'm an LPN. And she said, oh, you're so smart, like in, in indicating that what only non-smart people became LPN. So I, you know, like why, what is a career? Why am I in this position is because it's not because I wasn't smart It's because, you know, this is the route I took. Anyway, so immediately I went right back to school. I found the program, uh, the University of Bridgeport uh, was offering a 12 month accelerated program for LPN. So I went back to Glutonic, finished my prereqs, got into UB and finished my RN. Uh, so literally I was in school from like 19, well, I should date myself, but for 1986 to like the end of 1989, like finishing up what could have been like a four-year track, but just like a two-year track. So I always tell people like really evaluate. I know that going the two-year track is easier, but at the end, you end up in school for six years to achieve something that you could have done in four years if you really just um, had the right um, mentor and somebody telling you really how it can be done. Anyway, so I finished. I had already been working in the hospital. So when I graduated with my RN, I went into the NICU to work in the ICU. And this is like in the early 90s. Um, you know, I think that uh, I saw very little you know, the Hispanic population was not growing, um, you know, um, at that point, it was still very, a very small amount of people in this uh, area that are of Hispanic descent back in the 90s. So I worked there in around the mid 90s, I decided that I really wanted to finish my degree, I had always wanted to, um, you know, and I, I think that I always believe in like education because I want to, you know, where, where we are is I want to be where I am because I choose to be there, not because I can't go anywhere else because I pigeonholed myself into like this, you know, this is all I've done. I can't move on. So I went back to, and I was waiting around, you know, like um, I wait, I was waiting around for them to, I was lucky that I didn't have to take the GRE. I was waiting around for a program that didn't want me to take biochem because I didn't understand why I needed to take biochem. So the university, a Sacred Heart University began their uh, program and they did an RN to MSN. So I signed up and so I completed my BSN and then my MSN and I graduated like probably, I think I graduated in 2006 with all of it. And by then I was already, had already left the NICU because after like 10 years, uh, of working there, 
10, 15 years, I began to feel restless. Like I needed to do something different. I enjoy it. And I still work at it. I enjoyed it, but I still wanted something different. So I had gone into um, case management and that wasn't for me. And then I, I had a friend who was being, uh, who was teaching and she said, oh, they're hiring. Do you want to take apply? So I applied and I got hired as a clinical instructor at first. In the meantime, during that um, process, during those years, I began to see in the early 2000s, the number of um, Hispanics were growing in the area and they were coming to the hospital. And you could see, whereas before, you know, I wasn't really, you know, I speak Spanish fluently. So I, you know, was needed occasionally. Can you translate? Can you translate? And this is before people started really being uh, cognizant about using translators. You know, people, I always tell my, I teach now. So I always tell my students, just because you can go to Taco Bell and order a burrito does not make you fluent. And you should not be um, attempting to talk to people who speak Spanish in your fifth grade Spanish. And, you know, no disrespect to people who attempt to do it. But I feel like we wouldn't do that to somebody who spoke German or somebody who spoke you know, Mandarin, we would never even attempt to try to speak their language. But for some reason, uh, when it's Spanish, everybody thinks that they should just do this. So I started to notice, um, you know, that people really didn't um, go out of their way to provide the education, the care um, that they that they should for the or mostly the education for people to be able to take take their babies home and take care of them. So um I joined at that point. I joined the National Association of Hispanic Nurses, and I, um, uh, you know, started participating. in Connecticut didn't have a chapter, so I started traveling to New York City, and I would join their meetings. Um, so I did that for a couple of years, and then I started teaching, and it really brought. Uh, I started to understand more about um, the number of Hispanics, how. We are not represented in education, how we're not represented in leadership, how minorities really. And, you know, I've learned really, really very recently that and I'm trying very hard not to use the minority term because now it's become like, you know, we're not we're not less. And minority sometimes always implies that you're less. So, you know, we we are probably not the largest population. But anyway, so I started to realize how we didn't really have um people of color joining nursing school, very, very few. And then they struggled um, with the program and not because academically, I don't think that they're capable of doing it is because, you know, we have different um, responsibilities at home. We have different, our families are very important and they sometimes um, need to come number one and, and come in the first place. So I started to notice that that was happening a lot and there wasn't really support and students would drop out really quickly because they just couldn't handle their family responsibilities, school all at once. And because I was the only um, Spanish people, the only Spanish speaking person, the only person of color, people, students of color would come to me and they would use me as their mentor, their resource. If they had a problem, they would come to me and want me to speak on their behalf. So then I started to notice that we really needed to do something about, um, um, you know, mentoring them. And that's when I decided to um, start the, the, the National Association of the Connecticut chapter. 
Um, so because I was doing, I was a clinical instructor, I had worked at the hospital for so many years, I knew people. And so I started targeting all my, um, you know, all my hentes, I call them my, um, you know, all the Spanish people that I knew that worked at the hospital, you know, talking it up, talking it up. I talked it up to students. So I finally gathered like 10 people that were willing to, to do it. And we then became a chapter in 2010. Um, and it's been really a great, um, ride. Um, I think we've been, we are now in our 12th year, um, or beginning our 12th year, uh, in March, we celebrated our anniversary. Um, and then in the meantime, we've had, I've had the pleasure of like meeting, you know, people like you, Wendy, and people from other disciplines and other, uh, and mostly students who have been able to, um, may be part of the association. Uh, and one of the things that our chapter did initially is recognize that we needed to provide um, support for students, not only in terms of uh, mentorship, in terms of networking, but also in terms of scholarship. So we created this fundraiser that due to COVID, we haven't been able to do it and we won't do it this year again, but we call it the tequila tasting event. And we raised funds and we were, we've been able to give in the last um, 10 years, 15 scholarships to students, small amounts, but enough to help them with books or transportation or what have you. So aside from that, I feel like um, when it comes to students, we help them with mentoring, leadership, engaging in the community, recognizing, you know, what we need to do. And, you know, and I don't want to burden like you know I think that people of color already feel a burden to be responsible for all the health disparities that are going out there but I feel that you know we recognize them and you know it's our people that are experiencing them so we need to like do something about it so we've done um, you know we have a, a community engagement committee that works on educating the public, um, especially the Hispanic community. Our motto is, um, you know, promoting nurses to improve the health of the Hispanic community. So we've been able to do that. Um, this year, we had a grant from the National Library of Medicine and we were, we've were we been doing um, health literacy uh, education on, for adolescents uh, in the community and also for um, adults, which has been really good. Another reason why too, like I found important to start the chapter is because I, when I was working at the school, um, the school had received a grant to do education or the hospital had received a grant to do education in the community, helping uh, people who um, had no, and this is before uh, the Affordable Care Act became law. So people who had no insurance or minimal insurance, who didn't speak English, who had A1C levels um, greater than eight. So I, I was, uh, they hired me to do this. And so I would go into the community. My job was to go to make appointments with people, go to their homes who had been identified by their physician needing uh, education. So I went into their homes and, uh, you know, we talked about how they were handling their, their diabetes 
you know, in their kitchen, looking at what they were using to cook, trying to help them to change. Because, you know, as Hispanics, we love rice. You know, we just don't go anywhere unless it's accompanied by rice. So trying to show them healthier um, and that they can still eat it, but that we couldn't, shouldn't be eating it in a quantity. And, uh, you know, changing um, their mindset about certain things, certain diets. So I did that for like a year and a half and had some really great results. I call it like, um, uh, I think for some people, I was like their personal Weight Watcher person because I would come to their house once a month with my scale and my looking at their books. Okay, let's look at your log. Let's look at what you did. Get on the scale. Let's measure you. And for some people, it really was um, very helpful. They lost weight. They became to, began to walk and exercise and felt really good about it. So I took that. And it became part of what our chapter does. You know, we we did a program a few years ago where we had a, uh, so in our group, it's not just nurses, it's social workers, anybody who, I always say, anybody who wants to improve the health of the Hispanic community. And so we had a social worker, uh, we had a nurse navigator, and then we had us, and we made a program where we would, um, you know, go to, um, there was some local churches in the city of Bridgeport, and we would, uh, uh, ask for people who wanted to be part of it. So they would meet with uh, us and we would educate them on their diabetes, on their hypertension, on how to stay healthy. Then they would meet with a social worker who would then talk about, you know, issues and things and help them uh, navigate some of the problems. Because, you know, like if you say you have cancer, people immediately are, you know, they can understand that. But if you say that I have diabetes, people say, oh, well, if you could just stop eating cake, you'll be fine. And because in, and even for the person themselves, um, you know, it takes years for you to see the damage that the diabetes has done before. And so I think that trying to make them understand how important it is to begin making the changes now so that we don't get to like the amputation and the kidney failure later on. So we, you know, did that program for a few years. So we're always looking for programs that not only engage our members, but also, um, you know, do um, something for the community. In the mid, um, in 2012, I left Bridgeport Hospital School of Nursing and I came to Southern Connecticut State University where I, um, you know, um, was uh, teaching the nursing department. And I started a subgroup of our chapter with the students because I wanted to engage them early on to become leaders to be mentored to be mentored by us and also to start engaging in the community and uh, uh, two years ago we changed the name we used to call it the Southern Connecticut uh, Connecticut non chapter but we now changed it to the multicultural healthcare leaders because we wanted to include everybody because we did have members at the school who were black who were um you know brazilian who weren't necessarily just spanish and they joined and we wanted them to feel that it wasn't you know like the name sometimes just isolates you know people think oh it's only for people who are hispanic so we changed it to multicultural healthcare leaders and it has grown and students participate and we invited public health to be part of it um and so it's been in its, its three years now, and um, it's really working out well. And this year we have um, connected with the Southern uh, Black Nurses Association and the Nigerian Nurses Association to bring them in to be the, between the three chapters to then mentor the students, because I think that it's good to 
for students of uh, who are Black, African American, and students who are Hispanic to see people of their own heritage, um, you know, thrive. And we know that, you know, while we don't see it in practice uh, in schools and we don't see it in leadership, because I don't know if you attended the 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 um, the future of nursing one of the webinars they said that even today uh, 90 percent of people in leadership are still white and so I think it's really important for um, students to see like the two presidents of these two organizations have leadership roles at Yale so I wanted them to see that you know that this is um, something that they can achieve so it's been um you know, uh, really important. And the students have developed great leadership skills that they will take on and hopefully, and I have some students who, um, you know, continue on. We we understand that there's like a gap in between graduation, getting a new job, passing the NCLEX, getting a new job, all that overwhelming, the night shift, this, that stuff that they're not used to. They think that they think that school was tough until you know, until there's no spring break <laughs> and they're, you know, you know, working. But um, so we give them a little leeway and then we, you know, then they come back to us and become part of uh, as members. So we're always looking to striving to um, help them, you know, they're the future and they they need to know that they really need to, they can make a change and a difference. No, that is awesome. And you're doing such great things for the community, for aspiring and future nurses. And I think it's very interesting that it all stemmed from that one conversation when you were an LPN. <laughs> and, you know, it just kind of really changed your life and you've been kind of going ever since. And now you are a doctor prepared nurse. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to go back to get your doctorate and how has having a doctorate really impacted your practice or your ability to influence the community? So um, I want to say that when I graduated with my master's, I had said, if anybody hears me say I'm going back to school, they should immediately check me in uh, <laughs> to, you know, check me in because I must have lost my mind. But, you know, I was working and I have a DMP. So it's a doctorate of nursing practice. I'm a um, you know, as people know, a doctorate of nursing practices, people who take research and put it into action. And then uh, people have PhDs who love to do research. And I'm like an action person. I want to get talk about what people have researched and put it into action. So when I was working at the School of Nursing, Bridgeport Hospital School of Nursing, the DMP started becoming uh, something. It was, it was just in its infancy and people started talking about it. And, you know, I was like, oh, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. But then people that I work with started doing it. And I felt like, and my husband, and I want to say that my husband, um, we've grown up together. I mean, we got married when I was 19, he was 20. And I mean, he has supported me through school. And he's the first one to say, aren't you going back to school? Are you, are you done? Are you going to do something else? So he was the one that said, you should do it. And so um, I was lucky that, um, I had uh, met uh, somebody, um, I don't know if you're, if you know her, but she, Joyce Fitzgerald, she's a renowned author and she is kind of like one of the few people, she's a case Western or was a case Western. She started the DMP. And so she brought a cohort from the university, Oakland University to Connecticut. And so I joined and, you know, was it difficult teaching full time and doing it? 
Um, yes, but you know, I I feel like I'm so happy um, that I did it because it has opened up so many doors. You know, I wouldn't be here at Southern. I am now the program undergraduate program director. I have, you know, been able to, um, you know, speak, uh, you know, on the topic. I teach maternity, so maternal newborn nursing is my specialty and my love. And so it has been, you know, um, it has given me an opportunity to participate in, um, you know, educational um, sessions with with uh, other colleagues, but it really has helped a lot. If I, if I didn't have a doctorate, I wouldn't be here. And I feel like it um, had, it did open up my eyes about, you know, getting programs, doing stuff. And that's one of the things that I do here too, as well. Um, I'm always like, okay, like we've talked about it long enough. Let's put it into action because, you know, we need, we can't talk about it for 10 years. We need to like move, like things need to change and we need to make them happen. So it does, it has helped. It is really, I encourage, I'm one of the, I think that people know that, that I will always encourage education. Like you should go back to school. You should do this take one course at a time before you know it, you're done. And it's like, it's over. And, and as I mentioned earlier on, it, um, it really, you know, if you love what you're doing, then you stay, but you know what, it's a choice. It's, you know, people in my generation graduated from nursing school, like a diploma, maybe they got a bachelor's, they stayed in the same place and they never left. And so, they feel like, oh, they couldn't do it. And I haven't, I have not been like that. I have, you know, I left the NICU. I went on to case management. I went into teaching. And in the meantime, I did other things, you know, community grant work through, you know, the hospital, things like that, because I feel like there's so much to do and not enough time to do it all. <laughs> yeah, so. you, you truly, you, you exemplify the mission of the National Association of Hispanic Nurses, right? So really promoting furthering education and leadership opportunities. So you are really it. You are walking the walk and talking the talk, so to speak, which you don't see a lot. Um, so as you know, we're, in the, we're currently in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. How has that impacted your position as a president of a minority nursing association? And what have you all done in terms of maybe addressing health disparities or educating the community in terms of, you know, COVID-19 and vaccinations. Have you done anything in that realm? So we definitely have in early on in the pandemic, you know, it was like a hard to shift from like on ground to, um, to being virtual. And we, you know, found needed to find our footing, but we're connected with the Connecticut Nurses Association. And um, one of the things that one of our members is doing, uh, was doing early on is she's a public health nurse. Um, she's a master's in public health, as well as a PhD. And so, and she is, um, you know, speaks Spanish fluently. So the, um, um, associate, the Connecticut Nurses Association was looking for us to help with, uh, because at the beginning of the pandemic, they were providing daycare for frontline workers and the people providing the daycare were people of Hispanic descent in their homes. And they were had a lot of questions about, you know, what was safe, what wasn't safe. How And so um, uh, Dr. Planas, Jesse, um, was able to um, provide um, 
hour, like I think she did two hours a week, two hours a day for a, a space of a, like six weeks with these families, teaching them, you know, how to clean, how to do disinfect, what to do, answering them questions about COVID. And, you know, back in June of last year, we still were going with, yes, this is it. No, no, this is not. Oh, let's change. And so that in itself was very hard for families. But I think like knowing that they were hearing from somebody that was like them kind of uh, brought a little bit of trust, more trust in uh, in the message that we were trying to get across. So we did a lot of um, that. Um, we, I started to bring in uh, members, you know, uh, from the community into our chapter to talk about self-care and uh, what they needed to do and educating ourselves even more about COVID. And in the meantime, we had received our grant, which we were supposed to roll out in September, uh, you know, in person, going from uh, to high schools, teaching adolescents about understanding how to obtain healthcare, health um, information. Um, so we had to pivot and immediately develop an online program and start targeting, which is what we ended up doing. And while it didn't start off, you know, when we applied for the grant, it was just to do health literacy. It wasn't, but it became so important to tie COVID to health literacy, to help people understand where they needed to go to get the correct information, to differentiate between blogs and opinions and, you know, articles to like real scientific message and to understand that this was new and that while the message changed, it was because it was new. It wasn't because people didn't know what they were, you know, scientists didn't know. It's just that this was a new thing and every day we found new things. So we did that. We um, um, provided that. So it kind of worked out. Um, the students at the high, um, I also had a grant for my students here and the multicultural healthcare leaders to do it. And their grant was supposed to teach um, uh, adults about uh, preventing or developing, preventing the development of dementia through exercise and then also health literacy. But because then we, you know, we couldn't meet with any person who was elderly because of COVID, we then shifted it to just adults. And then it, it too became about learning about health literacy and learning about where to find the information on COVID. So that is what we have been doing since, uh, you know, the summer and September, uh, and we still are getting calls from people who want us to present um, to their organizations. And in the meantime, we joined um, Yale's um, group that's working on messaging, um, you know, to the community, uh, putting out the right message. So I joined their um, their working group and uh, we meet, we at the beginning met like weekly to develop like the talking points, making them uh, so that people could understand them, people could, at all levels could understand them. And now, and it's in September when vaccinations became available, we tried very hard to get in there and help out. But, you know, with students, you really can't, um, can't do it. And because it's run by the hospital, there's so many, you know, you have to be hired and this. So it became a little frustrating. But in the last month, we have been able to join as not just you know, maybe not vaccinators because they're students, but as like um, throwing up the vaccines, hurting the people and helping. So we're, we're doing that. We're helping people. We're especially targeting in the New Haven area, um, all these clinics that are helping in areas that are uh, underserved. So 
we are doing that and the students are really loving um, the, uh, you know, being able to be part of it, to be able to say that, you know, they're, they're helping the community. So that's our goal to, you know, now that we're vaccinating more and more people to, um, to be part of it and uh, to be much more involved. One of the other, one of the problems, and I talk to people who are, who are organizing is that they have this stuff Monday through Friday and, you know, people want to volunteer, but people work. So we said, we really, if you had it on the weekend, you would have so much more people from our organization helping. And so at first they were like, you know, we're working at, but I just recently got a message that they're, they're getting a grant that will provide, will allow them to provide vaccination on the weekend, which will help for the community as well, because so many people just can't leave work. I mean, that's one of the things that I found interesting about COVID and even from the testing, you know, that we never really like, well, you know, I'm grateful that it was rolled out, that people that tested, that it was free, that it was available. I remember reading an article how when in New Haven, Yale announced that um, they have set up this big testing site at Long Wharf and the Long Wharf section of New Haven, but you had to drive. And I'm thinking it's away from people who don't have a car. They have to take a bus. What are they supposed to get in the car with somebody else? How are they supposed to get tested if you have to own a car? Like we didn't like immediately from, you know, from the beginning, not only were people of color affected by the number of people who were being infected because of the job, the nature of the job, no, like most people in restaurants or cleaning or hospital uh, employee, uh, employees who, you know, are environmental services had to work and they couldn't leave. I mean, so they're, they're getting sick, but then here we are providing the service, but then we're saying, oh, you have to own a car. And, you know, that in itself is a, you know, a problem. So I think that you know, it became, I, I felt like it, it, it kind of like, it just never seemed to, to at the beginning, be available to everyone. You know, while they said it was available to everyone, I think that there was, it was really not because if you don't own, own a car, you know, you couldn't go. And then also, um, I think like now with the vaccination, I saw, I follow this, um, this, um, um, woman, um, she's a professor, um, her name is Dr. Rea, uh, and she, t- she did an interview for somebody um, on TV, and people say that, you know, oh, there's hesitancy among, you know, Blacks and hesitancy among um, Hispanics, but I think that she, her message was really good, and I think I understand, I think I agree with her that she said it isn't that it's hesitancy is that it's not available. Like it's not available. It's not that people are hesitating. It's just that they can't get it, that people are, yeah, there is distrust, obviously, but, and one of the latest things that we have done is members of our chapter have videotaped for um, um, this organization um, that uh, covers, um, it's uh, the Connecticut Task Force, Healthy Task Force. They videotaped themselves saying why they got the vaccine, which is helpful. So, yeah, no, that's awesome. And I think that's the important of the importance of you being at the table. So you can say that you're setting up this big production, but you're not reaching the people who actually need the vaccine right. and talking about uh, hesitancy in the vaccine. It's not that it's education. 
you know, even healthcare professionals and scientists, we don't know everything about the vaccines or even the virus. So it's really education. Everybody keeps saying, oh, they're hesitant. It's, you know, it's all this and that, but we're people too, meaning minorities. We are people, we need to be educated and make sure we understand. Yes. And also access. So that kind of brings me to my next question about health disparities and telehealth. You know, everyone's talking about how telehealth is going to, you know, really be the end all be all for health disparities, which I totally disagree with. And I won't get on my soapbox because I want to hear your perspective. But health disparities is so much more than telehealth. I mean, that's not even the start of it. So what are your thoughts on health disparities and telehealth? Well, I want to tell you the my story, which will tell you what I thought. So my mom is 90 and she lives with me. At the very beginning of the pandemic, back in February, she had a doctor's appointment. Okay. And uh, we got a call from the doctor who uh, said we couldn't come to the office, that they were offering telehealth. So now my mother is, you know, she speaks English. Um, you know, she you know, she doesn't really need a translator, but she's hard of hearing now, you know, her vision isn't all that well. So I said to her, oh, we can't go to the doctor, but we can do it on the computer. And she was like, what? Like, what, are, like, what, what, is, what is he going to do? Like, she already like, you know, we already, you know, I don't know if you know, you probably know this, how Medicare changed a while ago, where if you come to the office for your wellness check, you can't complain about anything because then your appointment changes to an appointment and you have to pay. So my mother already is having a problem with that, that she can't tell the doctor, my back hurts, this hurts because we're at the wellness check. So now she says, what are we going to do on the computer? Like, so to her, she goes, I want to show him this. I want to show this. And she just didn't, she goes, you know, who's watching it? Like, what are they doing? And she, you know, she already had a hard time in person, let alone now we're going to be doing this and, you know, not being able to hear well um, made it hard. And so then what would it be me talking and me explaining? I just don't, I think that, and, you know, my mom is lucky, you no, know? she has me at home that I can, you know, you know, being a nurse, I can say uh, the things, but too, at the same time too, I don't know if you get blamed for this, but you know, sometimes people say that we're a nurse because we're a nurse, we kind of poo poo everything. So maybe, you know, maybe I'm not the best judge of like who would be, but my mom, I don't, I don't think it would work. First of all, uh, people who really, truly, uh, you know, experience health disparities probably wouldn't have access to a computer to do this. Will they, I mean, students already having trouble uh, getting on the internet. There's, you know, three people at home going to school. Um, they have limited Wi-Fi. Maybe they have one computer that they uh, share. Um, I, I, and truly, like, can somebody, I mean, I think that if you have questions, if I want to, I think one of the things that I think is beneficial now is that, for instance, I don't know if you do my chart. Like I can send a message to my doctor and say, I want to do this. I want to do that. And it goes and she responds, which I think is great. Like, I think that's great. But that's only because I can see my phone. I can read it. I can send a message. But my mom wouldn't be able to do that. Like she, nobody, I mean, I don't, I, I don't, I think that people are saying, you know, it's, oh, it's the end and be all of all of it, but it's not. Like it really, for people truly who experience 
health disparities, who experience disparities, who are, you know, in areas where Wi-Fi isn't um, available, where computers are not available, where, uh, you know, who don't speak the language and who already have a hard time when they go to the office not speaking the language. Now imagine uh, on a computer. And then, I don't know, I think that it doesn't address people's modesty levels. You know, we have people who culturally are not going to, you know, this, you know, show their body off in a camera. So I think that we don't really think about, um, I, I just don't think that it's, I think it's for younger people, for millennials, for people who have access. Yeah, this is wonderful. It, you know, they can go on, they don't miss a beat, you know, like they don't, uh, but for people who really need to see the doctor who have experience with, you know, lack of access or lack of basic things, uh, I don't, I don't know how it will work. Uh, I, and we know that, for instance, this whole time in terms of maternal health, uh, you know, so many women didn't go to the doctor in the, while they were pregnant and missed out on great evaluations and great findings by, by their practitioners. So I don't think that, you know, uh, it's, I don't know. I don't know. What is your, like, what is your opinion with it? <laughs> just give me a, like a brief one. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just thinking about in terms of access, healthcare insurance, people don't have insurance and, you know, telehealth is great when they say for people in rural areas, but what about people in urban areas, right? So people are working, may not have insurance. I think you hit on it. They may not have the technology, the internet and computer literacy. How do you use this thing? If I do have the phone or internet, how do I use it, you know, effectively? So I think there's just so many factors that go into telehealth that, I mean, I don't think they need to say anything about disparities in telehealth because it does not start from there. It, it, it makes me crazy when people say that, that telehealth is really gonna, you know, you know, really help healthcare disparities in minorities, which it's not. It, no. it's not. I have a mom who's elderly. She has a smartphone. She knows how to answer it. Barely, right? Never mind trying to get the doctor on the phone and, and all of that. But it just really, it bothers me when people say that. <laughs> my mom has a flip phone. And while she has a Kindle, the moment the Kindle doesn't do like what she's used to doing, and it's because maybe the Wi-Fi got disconnected, she's like looking for me to fix it. So I can't even imagine somebody who doesn't have, you know, somebody living with them that could navigate them. But yeah, I, I read an article and I know I saw um, a grant. There was a, uh, you know, I think the NIH or one of those groups was offering a big grant to develop telehealth for rural areas in Connecticut in terms of mental health. Um, and so, you know, I think that I did read like for people who have mental health, I mean, my mental health um, people, friends who are nurse practitioners have said that they find that people are more willing to meet with them. But then these are people who are younger adults. They're not, you know, elderly who can't see, who may, you know, you know, maybe they don't have a tablet. I mean, who has a tablet? Not everybody has a tablet, not everybody has a computer. I think the assumption that every household has a computer and a tablet is really, you know, another, you know, disparity that we put on people. Like we're already dealing with disparities in terms of access, insurance, um, getting the right provider to listen to you, uh, to medicate you correctly, to, 
you know, send you for the test when you should go for the test instead of waiting, making you wait. Um, and now we're going to say, here, use your little, my, like for instance, with my mom, her flip phone to, you know, to make an appointment. She, you know, she can't even renew her pre prescriptions now because it's all online. So, yeah, no, that's true. And, and I think telehealth is a great thing for healthcare in general. But when you talk about health disparities, there's just so much more there that we need to unpack before we start talking about we're going to, you know, improve health disparities in minorities. So um, just to kind of switch gears a little bit, where do you see our profession in three to five years? And what can we do now to prepare nurses for that time? I think that we really need to, um, I see us hopefully continuing on, you know, what with, you know, for years and years, we've been like the most trusted profession, but what, really, what does that mean? Where did that get us? We were still like, I feel I want to say like second class citizens when it comes to anything. I read an article recently that only like, even today, only about four to five percent of nurses are quoted in newspapers or, you know, interviewed to talk about issues affecting nurses and patients, and yet we spend the most time with them. So I feel that uh, in three to five years, hopefully we have continued on with us being at the forefront and, the, and demanding to be at the table, demanding to be um, you know, heard and make changes um, in terms of um, you know, delivering the care or having people having access. In terms of leadership, I hope that we will not have wasted um, the whole, you know, diversity and inclusion, the whole, um, you know, what's happened in the last year in terms of Black Lives Matter, in terms of racism, that I, you know, I don't want to think that we're just, you know, putting a Band-Aid or paying lip service to it. That Like, this is a momentum and we need to, like, move forward and continue to make the changes because, until we have, like, when we look at a board of directors, I have to tell you a story. Years and years ago, I saw, um, and, you know, I, I saw Yelney Haven posted on Facebook a picture of their, uh, their vice presidents and presidents. And, you know, they were all Caucasian. They were male, older males and women. So I commented, oh, nice picture. How about some diversity? Of course, they didn't, you know, and so then a doctor that I know of, Dr. Gita at um, Bridgeport, you know, liked her comment, but they removed it, you know, because it wasn't like that. But, uh, you know, now we have a little bit more, you know, there's a little bit more rep representation on their board of directors. So I hope that we will continue that until we have more, until we can look at a, a leadership and see that there's all kinds of people involved. And not only, I think, in terms of, color or heritage, but in terms of, you know, uh, sexual orientation or gender, um, you know, how people identify themselves, people need to be represented in all, all areas, because we can get better in nursing. I think nursing needs to change overall education to be much more addressing what people, the people that we care for now, instead of trying to address how we have always done, you know, like one of the smallest thing is like tattoos, you know, like having a practitioner with tattoos or a student with tattoos, how we have to cover it up. Well, our population doesn't mind. Why do, why does this people who are in charge think that that's something we need to get rid of? So I think like forward thinking, and I think that um, 
I think hopefully because we have younger nurses now going into the profession, uh, we have a little bit, we have increased the diversity, more males, more, uh, you know, Hispanics, more Blacks, more African-Americans. We, I think, have the power to make changes where people aren't dying unnecessarily, you know, like, because I teach maternity, I know, like, the, the fact that, you know, Black women fare, and, you know, and you see it, fare so poorly, even, you know, we used to hide behind, oh, you know, they're bad, they're poor, they're this, they're that, well, we have high, I mean, I read, I don't know if you probably know that, you know, three or four times higher people who are highly educated are dying. And yet, so what's the story? Like, what, what is the real reason? So we need to stop hiding and people really need to come out and acknowledge their biases and do something about it. Like stop hiding, stop saying, oh, oh, I'm not biased. Oh, you are, you are, you, you, you're conditioned to be that. We're all conditioned to have some type of bias. And so we really need to work hard at like checking ourselves and saying, are we doing right by the patient? Or, you know, I always tell my students that we're in people's lives for 30 seconds. So we're not there to change the way they are. We're not there to say, well, I do it this way. You know, we're there to support them, to help them lead a healthier life and, and respect, but also to offer everybody the same kind of service, not differentiate between who gets what and who doesn't get what. Everybody gets hurt. One of the things that bugs me the most is when I read like books, I teach transcultural issues in nursing, which is supposed to be out about cultures, but I don't use a book because I find that I read these books that say Hispanics behave like this. And I'm like, well, I don't behave like that. You know, that's not me. I mean, I, I don't do that. My family doesn't do that. We're also different within our cultures because we all have been raised differently. We all come from different, you know, we have different mix, you know, who has what in their family. And so I think that all of that, I think needs to hopefully will will we'll move forward because I think we really need to do it. I think that we have the power to be a bit uh, bigger voice. And I think that I think that people, nurses are now, you know, which is not good for people who need care, but, you know, young nurses are coming on, they're working two, three years, and then going on for leadership roles, going on for further education, which I think is wonderful because until we have that many who are not going to say, and, you know, I think that this is a like a different kind of generation. And I don't think in terms of like age, but like a generation in terms of generational nurses where they're not going to stay around if you're not going to treat them right. So I think that that is, people need to be, um, you know, checked. People need to really, employers need to hear that nurses do make a difference. And I know that COVID has shown that without nurses, they have not, they wouldn't have been able to uh, run and some nurses, you know, are suffering greatly because of this. As you might know, you know that they, they are unbelievable. I recently, um, we, I work at um, a, a local hospital, and um, we had a, a nurse who was working in the city and delivered and here in Connecticut, and she had taken a leave and was on Prozac, and because she was so devastated by what she experienced. So I think that we owe it to them to really change the way, because while we were there to help and we, you know, as always, we, when we're called, we come nurses, 
I don't think that we get the respect and the, you know, the recognition that we need more than just to show up to work. We need to have power. No, and I think it's going to happen. I think people like you who are in the profession, who are making a difference, all the, all the, you know, uh, other uh, practitioners and new nurses really who seek leadership roles, hopefully will make a change. Yeah, we have to be the change that we need. And, you know, post-COVID, PTSD, mental health, physical health of nurses, uh, you know, definitely going to take a hit. So we need to be well, you know, really take care of ourselves so we can be at the table and make effective change that's going to impact how we practice, you know. So I totally agree with that. And nurses, I always say this, are so powerful. We just don't know the power we have. But we are very, very, very powerful. So we're going to wrap up and um, do our rapid fire. Are there any last words you have for our listeners before we uh, wrap things up? I think that uh, I think that people need to realize that, as you say, they have we have the power and we need to really exercise it. And I think it's time. Um, you know, I used to say I always say that there's two type of two types of nurses, the nurses that punch in, do what they need to do and they do a great job and then they go home and don't think about it. But we need nurses to be involved politically, to advocate, to be at the table. We need to be uh, Mrs. Underwood. Um you know, we need to be, all of us need to be, maybe not at the high level, but we need to be, we need to be supporting all these causes that are in, are out there to improve the health. Because I think that when we improve the health of, for instance, um, Black maternal uh, ner- uh, women, then we will improve the health for everybody. It's not just one, it's not, it doesn't just affect us, one group, it affects all of us. So advocate, be present, speak up, don't, you know, don't, don't take us, you know, we're not subservient. We should just stop being that. We're nurses and we're professionals and we're educated. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Let's get into our rapid fire. So please okay. these sentences for me or answer the questions with the first thing that comes to your mind. Wellness means being healthy. I know I'm stressed when um, I have a big headache. <laughs> My go-to stress management solution is? Uh, read romance novels. <laughs> the last time I had a belly laugh was? Mm. I don't remember. <laughs> like, uh, I was away last week in California with my um, grandchildren and my granddaughter really makes me laugh. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. One thing I learned about myself during the pandemic is? And I'm okay to stay home. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> what is something that people get wrong about you? I think that um, they think that I'm bossy. <laughs> <laughs> and what is one thing you're grateful for today? Oh, I'm grateful that we met. I'm grateful that I have this opportunity to speak here, that to, to have myself to for people to hear what I have to say and that you think that I'm interesting enough you know we always suffer from that imposter syndrome where we think like what could I say that people would find interesting so I I'm grateful for that I'm grateful that we connected awesome and I'm grateful for that too and thank you so much for being here we'll have to have you back again sometime thank you thank you it was such a um I can't believe it went by so quickly yes (laughs) (laughs) thank you for listening If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. 
Between episodes, you can follow the Nurse Wellness Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Before you go, I would love to share a free mindfulness ebook with you. Go to stressblueprint.com backslash 35 and download your free copy. Until next time, go out and be your best, do your best, and give your best. If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Medicine in America, hosted by Anthony Manson and Todd Harrington, shares the stories of physicians, other healthcare professionals, and industry leaders who are changing the way we deliver care. There's an episode that you should check out called Primary Care Reimagined with Subscription-Based Preventative Care Model. It's an inspiring call for a paradigm shift in primary care. All of their episodes highlight innovative ideas at the forefront of the movement to transform our healthcare system. Check out Medicine in America on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.